This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Born to be Good, The Science of Meaningful Life, Our guest today, Dr. Keltner, demonstrates that humans are not hardwired to live lives that are nasty, brutish, and short. We are, in fact, born to be good. Keltner is a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, director of the Greater Good Science Center, and co-editor of Greater Good Magazine. Dr. Keltner, welcome to Weekly Signals. It's great to be here. Uh, how are you today? I'm I'm feeling <laughs> hardwired for good. <laughs> All right, very good. And are you at the Greater Good Science Center right now? Well, I'm in the Department of Psychology at Berkeley, okay. uh, where the center's housed. And about a quarter of a mile away, there are 8,000 people celebrating. <laughs> well, very, yeah. <laughs> what would they be celebrating? What could that possibly be? The Greater Good, I'm sure. Yeah. Now, now, what do you do there at the Greater Good Science Center? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the Greater Good Science Center started about five years ago, and, and what we're interested in is uh, translating this new science of compassion and altruism and gratitude that is exploding. Uh, and getting that out to people who really, really put it into practice, healthcare providers, teachers, educators, policymakers. Uh, and so we do that through a re- very vibrant website, uh, through science and scholarship, through our magazine that you uh, nicely mentioned, Greater Good, and then also uh, my colleague Christine Carter, who's the executive director and a former Ph.D. of sociology, uh, has a parent uh, letter or blog just, you know, telling parents about how to cultivate gratitude or kindness or a sense of laughter and play. Right. Now, now, a lot of people think that a meaningful life comes from a kind of metaphysical source yeah. and, and not something that can be broken down in science. How did you go down the road of science to find a meaningful life? God, what a terrific question. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one answer or one source of inspiration was really the ancient ways of knowing, uh, Buddhism, Christianity, Judeo thought, uh, Hinduism. And it's interesting, you know, Karen Armstrong, the great scholar and historian of religion, looked at all the great ways of knowing and said that the key that that unites all of them is compassion, which is an emotion I study. Um, So that got me reading the Darwins and the, the, the Confuciuses and Lao Tzu's and early Christian thought. And they all talk about cultivating these very unusual emotions like gratitude and reverence and awe and compassion. Uh, And then alongside that study, and that's really an important part of my book, uh, is the new science of happiness. And and if there's a a piece of wisdom you can distill from it from books like Dan Gilbert's Stumbling on Happiness, it's that self-interest gets you only so far in being happy. And what really matters is these pro-social emotions that connect us to others. Mm-hmm. Now, now uh, it's also led you through the work of, of Paul Ekman, too. You studied yeah. under him. Could you talk a little about, about what he did and what My you studied? My God. You know, I mean, and, and he did so much more than this new Lie to Me show that's yeah. <laughs> based on his work. Uh, um, so Paul... Um, took Charles Darwin. In 1872, Charles Darwin wrote probably the best book on emotion and maybe even happiness to this day, where he analyzed all the ways in which 
30 different emotions, reverence, gratitude, joy, anger, fear, are registered in our bodies and communicated to others. Paul took that, and he did two amazing things. The first, in the mid-1960s, he went to New Guinea. He took photos of six or seven emotions, and he found that people in New Guinea who had no contact with the West showed emotion just like you or I would, and then they judged those photos in the same way. That emotions, as Darwin had talked about, are universal. I think even more important, what Ekman did, for, and this uh, is really remarkable, for seven years, he, without funding and opportunities to publish, it was really dangerous to his career, he figured out how to code uh, the activity of the muscle movements in the face by how those muscles change the visible appearance of your face. And what they gave people like me, and I worked in Ekman's lab as a postdoc, is a, a very objective language to study things that I now study, like flirtatious movements of the lips or long-term devotion registered in your smile or embarrassment. Remarkable gift. Now, how does that affect your life? I oh, mean, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm at an advantage being on the other end of a phone. <laughs> Well, I was hoping you wouldn't ask, ask that question, but, you know, I mean, it takes 100 hours of intensive study to learn how to use the system. Mm-hmm. Then it takes an hour to code a minute of videotape because you're looking for all these subtle changes in the face. And I think I've spent about 10 years of my career coding faces. I think I've coded more faces than any human being alive. Mm-hmm. And it's changed my life. And you walk along. I remember coming out of Ekman's lab one day. I'd really learned the system. And I was, you know, I'd been studying, working too hard. I probably had a little body odor or something. I wasn't dressed too well. I was on a, a scholar's salary. And this woman serving me this croissant sneered in contempt. <laughs> and she didn't even know it. And I was like, oh, my God, I better get my act together. So you see a lot of amazing things in these little quarter-second facial expressions through, yeah. through this work. We're speaking with Dr. Keltner. The book is Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life. And I, I, ahead, just, have, I just have a uh, sort of a, uh, a cross-field reference here. I, wanna, I just want to follow up on the work of Noam Chomsky. He's, he's most, most known for his work in lingu- linguistics yeah, true. And, and the u- universality of language, how we all seek to, uh, to speak and to express ourselves. Is there any sort of cross over between the way we speak and the and what we express in our in our bot through our bodies. Wow, whoa, that's a very deep question. Um, so Chomsky, you know, what a revolutionary statement! I think in the fifties, he said, "Look, we, you know, and Steve Pinker is really the the intellectual offspring of this. That uh, we have a language instinct that is built into the brain, and that's universal. That there's a universal grammar to language in all human minds." even though languages sound really different. Uh, and that, that is the canonical wisdom we have now about human emotional expression, that even though cultures have specific ways in which they express emotions, the, the very core of our emotional displays, be it love or desire or embarrassment, which I study, or laughter, or smiling, or anger, are pretty universal. Now, the the question you asked is, how does the, the expression of emotion in words, what is it, how does it interact with the expression of emotion in our bodies? And one of the, the uh, conclusions that we're coming to when we study these systems, like 
vocalization or facial musculature is that um, we the the systems of the face and the voice and the body and touch which I study are older than the uh, speech that we use to express emotions and probably communicate more sincere properties of our current emotion. Mm-hmm. Now, you were speaking earlier about uh, a self-interest only going so far. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, am I getting it right to say uh, homo economicus? <laughs> yeah. Okay. They, you talk about that a lot in yeah. your book, too. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about uh, the dead end that that brings us to and, and how this has developed uh, in especially at the last part of the 20th century, the, the concept, or the, the actually the practice, I guess, of homo economicus. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, you know, when, when I, um, as I did my science of, pos- of emotion and positive emotion and things like compassion and gratitude and awe and um, all these amazing emotions that many people are feeling today, um, I, turn, I always turn to our great thinkers, and I was astounded by the, and a lot of people have been, by the cynicism with which people like Immanuel Kant and Ayn Rand and others viewed human nature, right? Mm. Uh, I should note, many people think Darwin had those views as well, but in fact, Charles Darwin in The Descent of Man, 1871, said sympathy is our strongest instinct and stronger than the feelings of of self-interest that the timid man is more prone to. Um, Give you an example of this. We, any kind of altruistic behavior, you give to another person, you give to a stranger, you tip a waitress on a road trip in a town you'll never return to, social scientific thought immediately assumes there's some kind of Machiavellian self-interest behind that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we ignore the possibility that we're wired just to be giving and caring and cooperative. So I translated those cultural assumptions to this concept, and other people have used this term, like Barry Schwartz, homo economicus. And the core assumptions are everything we do is self-interested, we're competitive at our core, and our mind looks is cynical, and we, we are wired to distrust others and to look for the Machiavellian intention in others. And all this, these new data coming in from economics and the science I do um, – I say that's just dead wrong. We are very generous. Uh, we give away lots of money to strangers. And then in my book, I show we have parts of the nervous system, little parts of the brain, the vagus nerve, a, a neuropeptide called oxytocin, that have evolved to help us give and to cooperate and to, to take care of others. Now, <clears throat> we're speaking with Dr. Keltner. The book is Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life. Did you have a question, Mike? You're well, looking? actually, I do. Okay. And um, that, that, and it's sort of, re- it is related to what we were just, you were just discussing. Is, is this idea of this short, brutish life, yeah. uh, you know, lived, is this, is there, uh, and you alluded to it, uh, Nathan yeah. alluded to it in his question, the ec- economics of it. Is it serve people in power more uh, to, to be to be thought of as I can't do any better than that. This sort of life that I'm living, this sort of unhappy life I'm living, is just the way it's supposed to be. Is that part of this equation? Has it been fostered in some way by the, by sort of economic power? Wow, you guys are asking spectacular questions. Well, um, well, thanks. Uh, <laughs> no, you you're know, not not trying to make us feel good. Are you? <laughs> I would never do that. <laughs> uh, 
You know, the what what we do know, you know, you always have to, you know, when you look at the deep origins of uh, a way to think about our lives or the good life or human nature, you have to look at the people who are writing, right? And you have to look at the historical times, and you have to look at the culture they're in. So um, there um, is, uh, you know, Charles Darwin, who advocated a very trusting, optimistic, sanguine, Obama-like view of human nature, was, by all historians' accounts, a profoundly kind person. He got along with everybody on the ship, the Beagle, raised ten children, devoted husband, and, and it's not surprising he would have a more rosy-eyed view of human nature. So you're asking the question, well, what about this other side, this, this view of being, you know, selfish at the core and being um, violent, and, and if, if left to our own devices, we just annihilate each other? Right. The, the, the West wasn't, civilization wasn't made by people who were nice. Right? Isn't yeah. that the idea? Uh, although I think that I, I don't agree with that. Well, that's, but you hear this. Yeah, you the, hear it all the time. The West wasn't settled not by nice guys. You yeah. Know, here we go. I know, exactly. And clearly, um, you know, part of it is just deep culture, which is we develop the idea of original sin, which is really different than in other cultures. Um, and part of it, I think you are right, is saying, well, there, there's kind of a, a relationship to power as well, that power dynamics gave rise to this view that humans are just competitive and small-minded. And I should note, you know, one of the, the most well-known architects of this view is Machiavelli. And Machiavelli had a very interesting life. He was tortured. Uh, he made his money by giving this strange advice about human nature and power to leaders in Italy. Uh, and that, that may be a, a source as well. Mm. Yeah, and also uh, one of the encouraging things about the changeover in our uh, presidents Can't today. Get off your mind. No, the presidency <laughs> is is that uh, uh, someone pointed out. I just heard this the other day that many of our ex now ex presidents were raised in an al- uh, an alcoholic home. Yeah, one of the, the father was an alcoholic. Uh, that they were seeking approval somehow. No this kidding. is sort of a hyperdrive. Uh, uh, sensible Nixon. Uh, Clinton, uh, they, they went back a long ways. I believe they were talking about the Kennedy family as well, yep. about this sort of alcoholic, uh, dysfunctional family situation and how, in some ways, going into politics and running for president, in a way, ruins your life because this is all you do. You become yep. this person that's completely driven into this sort of competitive, brutish experience in order to achieve that level of power. Yeah. And, that, and that here we have a, a president who seems to have come from a, a, a family situation in which was much more of a functional family situation, and hopefully that's one of the reasons why we feel so positive about him. Yeah, fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. So, what's with the gen ratio? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like that concept a lot, but it, it seems like another thing that, that probably complicates your life, be, or, or I'm talking about you in particular. Yeah. You're, you're breaking down the situations you're in, in into a positive-negative equation. Can you explain that a bit? Well, so... Uh, you know, I scientists love really, uh, you know, really succinct and powerful measures, right? Especially someone, you know, I've spent my life studying the smile or a little blush on the face. And so I was thinking about, as I wrote this book, you know, first of all, what is at the core of these emotions that many people feel today that are, that 
you know, for 2,500 years, people have tried to cultivate gratitude and compassion and modesty and play. And, and I had trouble finding a, a concept in the English language that really captured the spirit of those very important emotions. And my dad always had me reading Eastern philosophy, and I'm grateful for that. And there in Confucius is Jen, G J E N. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, and I apologize. But uh, the idea of Jen is a reverence and respect for others. And Confucius says a person of Jen, uh, in coming to completion, brings the good in others to completion. Uh, and so I felt that that was really the real heart of what I was writing about. And so then I asked, well, how can we take stock of how good my fa- my marriage is, or is my family getting along? I have a girl who's heading into puberty. I'm very interested in this question, you know. Yes. Uh, how about our culture today? And I came up with a gen ratio, and it's really simple. It's take a look at anything, and in the top of the ratio, you put all the actions in which people are bringing the good in others to completion. And in the bottom, you put all the actions that uh, others are, act- are engaging in that bring the bad in others to completion. And I think that ratio gives you a sense of how well you're living your life and, and how much happiness is in store for you. Yes. Go ahead, Bob. Well, we're speaking with Dacker Keltner. The book is Born to be Good, The Science of, meaningful, of a Meaningful Life. Uh, you spoke earlier, too, about your study being embarrassment. Yeah. Uh, that's That would be a fun study, I would imagine. I, have, oh, my f- God. <laughs> I mean... You know, uh, you know, and it's particularly funny because I was a highly embarrassable kid, and yeah. I, I think from the moment I woke up, I was embarrassed until <laughs> uh, in the middle of my life. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, it, I think it, embarrassment is such a testimony to the promise of studying emotion and the wisdom of Darwin's insights and, and what we glean by uh, being thinking about the welfare of others. So I actually like a lot of scientific endeavors, started studying embarrassment accidentally. Now, no one had really studied the signal or facial display of embarrassment, and I was in this lab, in Paul Ekman's Human Interaction Lab, and I was coding people getting startled unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. And the reason why, your listeners may think that we're just punishing people or torturing them, but actually uh, the startle response is a little three-quarter second long wonder, seven muscle movements go into it that tells you how anxious and tense somebody is, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost a, one of the truest index, indices of your anxiety levels. So as coding these people getting startled, bam, they got this big pistol shot behind them. And 50 to 60% of them, after falling out of their chairs and you know, getting startled and throwing up their hands, uh, as I watched them on videotape and frame-by-frame analysis, they showed this pattern of behavior, embarrassment, that hadn't been studied before. They looked down, they turned their neck, they smiled, this little coy, playful smile. Mm-hmm. They exposed their neck, they touched their face. And so I did a lot of research in the United States and in India, and we embarrassed people. We took photos to different parts of the world uh, to chart this, this very important display. And what we learned is it is just like mammalian appeasement displays, where when we make mistakes, we show this little display, people forgive us, they like us, they trust us. You know, it's not random that when you're on a first date, uh, a little mistake or a little act of embarrassment goes a long way. Mm -hmm. 
It, it shows a vulnerability then that yeah. opens you up? Yeah, absolutely. And think about what you're doing with embarrassment. You're getting smaller, and then like wolves and other uh, dogs, you show your neck, you show areas of vulnerability, uh, and it's a very, very powerful signal. Yeah, another. Do you have something, Mike? Well, I just I'm looking as I just want to uh, let people know that you, when you when you get this book, uh, Born to Be Good, um, there there's chapters devoted to each one of these the the topics we're discussing: uh-huh. compassion, yeah, awe, embarrassment. Uh, the the and, one I enjoyed the most, I think, is teasing. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know why. I think maybe I like to tease people, but it's it's refreshing to know that it's not all bad. Yep. People yep. on radio often are great teasers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, um, you know, actually our work on embarrassment led us to teasing, believe it or not, because we started asking people to write narratives or stories about when they've been embarrassed. And sure enough, uh, about a third of them were, you know, gee, I, I just got teased by my girlfriend or my dad was teasing me or, you know, an uncle or a friend. And teasing, and thanks for appreciating that chapter. It was a tough one to write, you know. Um, teasing is this remarkable, playful act where we use our voice on our face to provoke somebody. Hey, you just did something wrong, or you got to clean up the dishes, or your clothes in your room. But we do it in a really playful way that says, I'm not being aggressive here. I'm not serious. But I want you to take note of what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in doing this work, you know, there's a couple of really important lessons for the parents and teachers out there, and it's been a great opportunity for me to talk to uh, parents. One is, you know, immediately parents are thinking, God, you know, the last thing I want is my child to be teased. Well, we have to remember, like everything in life, teasing gets better as kids get older, and they really start to like it when they're 10 or 11. They get better at it. Um, Second thing is we have to really sort out bullying from teasing, which is often confused. And bullying is just much more aggressive. It's about humiliation. It is done in an asymmetrical way where the person can't respond back, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It is often uh, really uh, lacking in the playful cues of a tease. So there are a lot of ways in which they differ, just to to sort that out. And our studies show, just like you say, God, when couples tease each other in a conflict, they get closer, they do better than when they earnestly criticize each other. We had kids at a basketball camp. Uh, we set up a little situation where they got to cheer each other on or tease each other, they were more likely to become friends after teasing each other. And the reason why is teasing gives you a lot of chance to pat each other on the back and to look in each other's eyes and share laughter. So it's kind of counterintuitive. It is, it's a bonding experience. I would think that, that, that there is a fine, there's such a fine line between embarrassing somebody, humiliating somebody yeah. even, yeah. and teasing them, and uh, well done and with well-intended it is a it is a bonding experience. Otherwise, it can be something scarring and and very difficult to uh, get past. Yeah, and and you know the the bad teas last for years, and we all remember them oh, from yeah. our childhood. Yeah. And one of the great things about taking inordinate amounts of time to code I've coded all these te- teasing interactions, right? Is that you can find these little playful cues, a tone of voice, shifting how fast you deliver the words. Uh, a really funny facial expression. People start to look like jesters and fools when they tease, right? <laughs> if you have those little markers, they're just a half second long. The tease goes really well. Yeah. People find it a source of affection. We only tease 
the people we love most often. Right. Um, if you don't have those markers, you're in trouble. Yeah. And, and, and I myself, just speaking uh, personally here, have thought after a tease that I may have crossed over into something else. And uh, it, it takes it takes a little bit. You have to develop this talent. It's a talent. I, th- I think people who do it well, uh, it, it's a gift and a, in a way. I think it's something you have to work on. It is. And, you know, we've studied really good teasers, and they are respected by their peers. They, yeah. they rise in status. And I, and I like your view of it as a talent, that it actually is it's a talent like being able to recite poetry. Yeah. That you should, we should cultivate. Yeah. Well, I know that you want to get out of here right now, Dacker. I, I, I do. I absolutely. You we're join your friends. Yes, and your your friend, your eight thousand friends, and and we we will be with you in spirit. Trust oh. me, we will truly be there. Uh, and uh, really, thank you so much. This is a terrific book. Well, thanks, Mike, and thanks, Nathan. I really appreciate your your very thoughtful questions. All right, the book is Born to Be Good: The Science of a Meaningful Life. Dacker Keltner. Thanks for being on Weekly Signals. Okay, thanks, guys. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals. 